I'm Evan Knappen, and welcome to Gun Lawyer. Hey, today I have a special guest who's been a dear friend of mine for many, many years, and I'll be introducing him in just a minute. But I want to tell you first about some uh, craziness coming out of New Jersey, uh, which, of course, we're always in a deep battle there for our gun rights, and New Jersey is one of those what I call experiment states where they put forward the anti-gun laws first at a state level and then try to make them go national. But recently in New Jersey, our governor, uh, Phil Murphy, who's a staunch anti-gunner, in the uh, pursuit of the celebration, believe it or not, the celebration of National New Jersey Day. Yes, that's actually a thing called National New Jersey Day. Uh, Phil Murphy announced that he's going to be uh, changing the names of the rest stops on the parkway and they uh, have picked a variety of uh, new names i'm not making this up and of course most are of course uh, pop stars and such very rare to have anything with any historical or actual significance like that and uh, many are political and kind of hard to believe because we're, we're actually going to have at one of the rest stops the the Connie Chung rest stop. Yes, named after the a television journalist. I guess they were really reaching to try to fill in the uh, the uh, that spot. But what I love the best, without a doubt, is the renaming of the Montvale the Montvale rest stop. The Montvale rest stop is the very first rest stop at the top of New Jersey. So when you come into New Jersey, the first rest stop you're going to hit is Montvale. And that rest stop is being named after James Gandolfini. Yes, that will officially be known as the Tony Soprano rest stop. Now, what could be more appropriate than New Jersey than is immediately when you come into the state, the very first rest stop you're going to encounter is the Tony Soprano rest stop. And I'm sure they'll have... uh, pamphlets there for taking the Tony Soprano tour. You know, you can visit the Bada Bing, which is a satin doll, so it's there. You can see that. You can go down to the Meadowlands, see where the bodies are buried. You can check out all the great episodes out of the Sopranos that really represent New Jersey at its finest, uh, including the episode when Tony Soprano faced gun charges in New Jersey. That was actually a great episode. It was more realistic than you'd think. But anyway, uh, these new names celebrating National New Jersey Day will surely be fun. And uh, I hope to uh, never see you in New Jersey because stepping just stepping foot in New Jersey puts you in danger of your freedom, your rights, and your, and your liberty. Now, today, as I said, I'm happy to say I have a great guest on, and his name is Gregory Miller. And Greg Miller I've known Greg since the late 1980s. Both Greg and I uh, were employed at the very first firearm law firm in the nation. That was uh, Benenson and Cates in New York. And that's where I met Greg and been friends ever since. And Greg is uh, very active in his state of Connecticut. Greg's a gun rights activist in Connecticut, the way I am in New Jersey, and uh, Greg has quite a background in defending gun rights. He's counsel to CCDL, which is the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. 
Their gun rights group in Connecticut has uh, over 40,000 members. Greg's done work uh, for the NRA and just so many uh, pro-gun issues. And I'm really glad to have Greg here today. Hello, Greg. How you doing, man? Good evening, Evan. We are doing well on kind of a stormy night in Connecticut. (laughs) Yeah, we did pick a good one here to do today. Now, one of the things I know, uh, there's so much going on in Connecticut, and you've really had quite a role there, but one of the key issues that I'm really concerned with, and I think uh, our listeners would really be wanting to hear about, is how the Connecticut uh, point of contact where the state does the NICS checks for the federal NICS system, that that system has shut down for what about three weeks or so where no gun transactions were able to take place in the entire state of Connecticut. Oh my God, what a denial of gun rights to individual citizens and what a burden to the gun shops uh, trying to survive in in these economic times. Greg, could you tell us about uh, that situation? Yeah, I mean, essentially here, um, the states have an option of either using the federal NICS system, which more or less works pretty well, or they can use their own system. Connecticut elected to use their own system. The problem is it doesn't work. It has been bad for years. And they decided that in order to quote unquote update it, what they would do is they would replace the call-in system with a computerized system. And what we were told is that the dealer would simply go and dial on like they do in the federal NICS system. And lo and behold, instantaneously, we wouldn't have to fill out forms anymore. Everything would be automated and everything would be just wonderful. Well, it was a great idea, other than the fact that it was supposed to be implemented a year ago. And a year late, finally they come out, they bring this thing on with almost no notice, and what does it do? It crashes. So here the dealers are calling up. You can't take possession of a firearm in Connecticut until you have an authorization number which is then going to be placed onto a state form called a DPS-3. So the dealers call in. They're supposed to get that authorization number instantaneously, and you're able to pick up your firearm right there as long as you have a permit. Instead, what happened was when the system crashed, the dealers would simply originally get a busy tone, at which point they could at least auto-redial in, But under the new system, it says, please hold. You can't redial. The please hold goes nowhere. It will never pick up. Dealers, on average, are dialing in 1,000 times for each gun authorization. This takes hours, if not days. To make it worse... You're required to have the person stand there and wait while the authorization is obtained. Oh, my God. If you come at 10 a.m. in the morning and you stand there until 6 o'clock at night, they then shut off the system and you can come back for another day and take another day off from work. The dealers currently 
uh, for any mid-sized dealer, typically they have two to four employees being paid full-time to do nothing but hit redial on the telephone, to sit there hundreds if not thousands of times to simply get a message to please hold, and um, it is simply broken. So we've put the state on notice of the fact um, that we're seeking an emergency response from the district court here in Connecticut. We've already had one meeting with the district court. We've also held a press conference out there, which was well responded by the media. And what did the state respond? Well, they said, we're not sure what the fuss is. There is no delay. Everything is working perfectly. Oh, man. <laughs> how, how could they even say that with a straight face, Greg? Um, I guess you're going to have to ask them. It is ludicrous. They are handling a dribble of cases coming through. However, given the fact, if you have to call 1,000 times in order to get an authorization. However, it gets better. The 1,000 times simply gets you through to the state police. Now let's assume that you're Latino. The state police has advised us that Latino names are too common. And as such, the new computer system cannot handle transfers for anybody who has a common Latino name. When that happens, what occurs is they issue what's called a temporary denial. Now, what this is supposed to be is that for some reason in the system, they got back something ambiguous. But what this is, is simply that the computer takes too long to process, at which point the program times out and kicks them out. So it issues a temporary denial. Well, when you get a temporary denial, what you're supposed to do is then call back to them to find out why you got a temporary denial. But of course, when you try to call back, what happens? You get 1,000 please hold messages. You can spend days. We have clients currently who have spent more than a week trying to call up and find out why they've been denied. The situation has gotten so foolish, we were advised yesterday that a U.S. federal agent with his badge and ID came into a gun store to buy a firearm, and the system turned him down. So here we have a temporary denial on a federal agent. I mean, we, we have reached the level of ludicrous. And of course, what did they say? Well, we're working on it. Um, when it's fully implemented, uh, it's going to be much better. Of course, they don't tell us when that is. Wow, that is astounding. And uh, here it, the, the, the system is, uh, talk about systemic racism, huh? It's built right into uh, Latinos. They can't get their next checks done and getting denied their gun rights just because of their name. That's, that's really insane. The, the amazing thing here is that there was absolutely no need for this system. 
the federal government already had a system that returns an answer consistently between one minute and five minutes in a worst case. So given the fact that we have a federal system that works, why Uh oh. At the state level, which doesn't work. And part of what we've said to the courts is that we're dealing with a fundamental right, your right to acquire a firearm. We're right within the core of Heller here. So given that we're dealing with a, with a fundamental right, the state has no compelling interest in doing an independent system which doesn't work when there's another alternative which is easy to use and used in almost every other state in the nation. That is absolutely true. Why does a state want to pay for a system to enforce a federal gun law that they can get for free from the federal gun, uh, government? Why, do they, why would a state ever want to do this? We'll be back in a few. For over 30 years, attorney Evan Knappen has seen what rotten laws do to good people. That's why he's dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of America's gun owners. A fearsome courtroom litigator fighting for rights, justice, and freedom. An unrelenting gun rights spokesman tearing away at anti-gun propaganda to expose the truth. Author of six best-selling books on gun rights, including Knappen on Gun Law. A bright orange gun law Bible that sits atop the desk of virtually every lawyer, police chief, firearms dealer, and savvy gun owner. That's what made Evan Knappen America's gun lawyer. Gun laws are designed to make you a criminal. Don't become the innocent victim of a vicious anti-gun legal system. This is the guy you want on your side. Keep his name and number in your wallet and hope you never have to use it. But if you live, work, or travel with a firearm, the deck is already stacked against you. You can find him on the web at evannappen.com or follow the link on the Gun Lawyer resource page. Evan Knappen, America's Gun Lawyer. You're listening to Gun Lawyer with attorney Evan Knappen. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, we're back, and we have Greg Miller here who's filling us in on the uh, horror show taking place in the state of Connecticut. Individual rights are just being uh, stomped all over by uh, bureaucratic inefficiencies and systems crashing and probably things more nefarious than that. So, Greg, you were going to tell us uh, an excellent story about uh, further antics going on in Connecticut. But before you do, I just want to tell my uh, my great listeners, please uh, tell your friends to subscribe to uh, Gun Lawyer Podcast. This is how we get our message and voice out there. You know, big tech trying to shut us down, pulling all those algorithms and everything else on us so we can't get the message out. By coming on this uh, show and listening, you can defeat that and get the word out talk about these things that they don't want us to talk about. I'd also like to just mention my good friend, Mitch Rosen. You know, I use Mitch Rosen rig. I love his leather. 
and uh, you will too. Uh, he's just a, a buddy and just does great work. And I'd highly recommend checking out Mitch Rosen, Extraordinary Gun Leather. So tell me, Greg, what about this conversation that was overheard? Go right ahead. You know, you can't make this stuff up. As most of us know, the, the rank-and-file cops tend to be pro-gun. They're stuck in the middle of this. They don't like it any more than we do. And as you listen in the background, they have the speakerphone on. What are they talking about among themselves? This system doesn't work. This system is broken. This is ridiculous. And then, much to my amusement, a discussion of who brought the donuts this morning. But it's <laughs> great. We, you know, sometimes, you know, people try and drive a wedge between law enforcement and gun owners. And the reality is gun owners are the best friends law enforcement has. Ninety nine percent of these guys stand with us. And here they are stuck in this terrible system where they're having to do things here that they don't want to do. And this is a perfect example of it. And, and, and one of the yeah, go ahead. Everybody. Doug, I was going to say, you're absolutely right, because I've experienced that. As a matter of fact, many times my clients that call in tell me they were actually referred to me by the arresting officer, because that officer is forced into doing uh, an enforcement on gun laws that he doesn't uh, believe in and knows that there's a raw deal going on. And they refer their folks to me in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, there aren't too many criminal defense attorneys where the law enforcement officer is referring the one they're arresting to that person. And that's because of this issue, Greg. Law enforcement is with us. They don't like this. And uh, you're absolutely right. And I've proudly defended law enforcement. And we are pro-law enforcement. And it really does come from the top political brass, and it was set out that way. I think it started with an article in Rolling Stone in the 60s. They said, hey, let's see if we can get the police on the anti-gun side, and they've worked hard at getting the political brass of the police on the anti-gun side, but not the rank and file. That's absolutely so. You know, the thing that really scares me here, Evan, if you look at gun control across America, and both of us have done this for a long time, the first thing they did is they tried to come on and pass anti-gun laws, which across the country have been rejected. Then they went in, they tried to do it through regulations, and we've in most cases managed to strike down those regulations. But here's the latest twist. What they do now is they create a computer system. That computer system decides whether or not you get an authorization number in order to purchase a firearm. And then when the system crashes, the state's able to come in and say, well, we didn't do anything. Um, we don't know. It's just the computer. And this is the new cutting edge of gun control, blaming it on a nameless unelected software system developed by someone we can't see we didn't elect them we we have no control over it here's the next one this is just interesting with it the particular software vendor apparently we're told that connecticut chose is based in california 
the gun dealers open up so the lines come on about 8 30 in the morning you go to dial in and let's assume that the system is crashed and they need to call in for support to the software vendor well the vendor is in california they don't open until 9 a.m pacific time so for the first three to four hours of your business day half of your business day the police are like ah oh, we're sorry the vendor is not even open how could wow. we be so stupid but why are we doing it at all we've got a federal system it works and here the state comes in and they just say oh it's we don't know it's not our fault we didn't do it and for the poor officers who were there here they are sitting with the computer crashing over and over again so what we're seeing now is that the nature of gun control is changing they've tried to do this by statutes and they couldn't do it they didn't have the votes they didn't have the support the people have unanimously come back here and said nope we don't want these new laws so they they went on over they try to do things by ordinances we've gone in we've managed by public comment to keep those under control as well so now they've got a new tact what they seem to be doing now yeah. is they go out and they announce that your firearms transaction is going to be approved by an automated system that no human is involved in. Then the software crashes. Now at this point they say, well, this isn't our fault. This is something that every one of us should be watching all across the nation here. They can simply blame it on the computer. Politicians say, oh no, we're, we're not anti-gun. We didn't stop it. It's just the computer system. It makes no difference why you are denied your rights when you are denied your rights you are denied your rights and the u.s constitution does not allow that that's why we're headed into the u.s district court to assure that this ruse is not allowed to continue and greg that is an excellent point and in new hampshire we just uh passed uh, sb 141 which is to abolish the state gun line, because New Hampshire is half a POC in which handguns are done by the state and the feds through NICS do the long arms. And it was nothing but problems and trouble throughout the years. And through the COVID thing, it was uh, days and days of delay. It was horrible. And uh, they passed a, a law through the both houses of the legislature to abolish the gun line, but it is sitting on the governor's desk. Now we have a pretty good pro-gun governor. Governor Sununu has signed constitutional carry and done some great things for the Second Amendment. But oddly, there's one so-called, you know, friend, pro-gun group supposedly, that is against getting rid of the state system. And none of us, uh, you know, NRA supports the bill to get rid of it. GOA, you know, Gun Owners of America, they support the bill to get rid of it. Uh, you know, but this one group, and uh, we can't really, none, none of their, they have no legitimate reason for wanting it. And the things that they're saying are absolutely untrue uh, as to any advantages the state might have. There are no advantages. You can't bring appeals through the state. They have to go through the feds. New Hampshire has no such appeal for Nick's denial. Uh, there's just no advantage. And if the state system's down, you can't 
just go and use the Fed system. They don't allow that. Uh, and the inordinate delays and uh, just the uh, absolute inefficiency. And yes, just what you're saying, blame the computer. Blaming the computer. Blaming this system with, you know, it's like the man with no name, but it's the it's the anti-gunner with no name. And this is where the blame goes. And you know what? It's time to get rid of it. It needs to be abolished. And Connecticut, unfortunately, is a great example of the problems of when a state runs its own uh, point of contact instead of just having the feds handle it. When it's a federal gun law, the feds uh, do a good job, amazing to say, and it doesn't really matter whether they do a good job or a bad job. It's their law. Let them pay to enforce it. Why should a state pay to enforce a federal gun law? It, it, it's contrary to federalism. And uh, hopefully New Hampshire governor will do the right thing and sign that bill into law, uh, getting rid of it and avoiding the, the, the suffering that uh, Connecticut gun owners are going through now. You know, it's an amazing thing, Evan. Uh, Connecticut was traditionally known as the Gun Valley. Yeah. Almost all of the gun manufacturers were here. Uh, I never would have believed that we could see what's happening in Connecticut occurring. And let me, let me give you a couple of examples here of just how bad it has gotten. Under the system... If you want to apply for a pistol permit, and without a permit, you cannot buy any firearm in Connecticut. You can't buy a round of 22 ammunition. So you have to have a permit to exercise your rights. No, no matter how you define that, you have to have a permit. So what's supposed to happen? You're supposed to either download it or go to your police department. They hand you a package. You fill it out. You bring it down, and you file it with the local department. What they're doing now is they're saying, well, we're too busy to accept your application. And we have cases at the moment of communities that are taking six months before they will give you an appointment to even file the application to get a permit. Wow. So you wait the time. Now, in the town that I live in, you walk in. They do it same day. And there's many towns in Connecticut that follow the spirit of the law they do it instantly but we have a number of communities out here who do not that's that's very one. that's very new jersey-esque because that's what happens in new jersey you know number it's two. a similar thing mm -hmm. so here's number two once you filed the application by statute in connecticut they have eight weeks to decide they can grant it they can deny it, but they must take one of those actions within eight weeks. We have departments taking up to a year to make a decision. Now, under the law, you can file an appeal after 60 days. But do these police departments tell you you have a right of appeal? No. They tell you, listen, um, we're backed up. We'll get to it as soon as we can. And, of course, for most people, they don't want to create hostility with the officer reviewing it, so they do nothing. So here they are. They've waited months to file. They wait, at times, almost a year 
for it to be approved. And when it is approved, they get something that's called a temporary license. That temporary license doesn't actually do anything. Within 60 days, you have to go to the state police and then you have to get your state license which in theory is automatically approved. It's you just walk on in and they hand it to you on the spot. Traditionally, it took 10 minutes. Well, what they're doing now is they're telling you that at most of the barracks where they will accept these, they have a wait of more than 60 days for you to come in and get it. But a temporary license is only good for 60 days. Oh my so if you have to wait more than 60 days, your temporary license expires, at which point they won't accept it. And they send you back to your town and say, you have to get your municipality to issue you another temporary license. Or in one case we know of, they said, you have to start all over. Wow. Well, Greg, it is really sad to see that Connecticut has gone down this slippery slope. Like you said, it's hard to believe because of the strength of gun manufacturing and Connecticut being built on gun manufacture in large in large part. And uh, historically, uh, apparently that's, uh, that's changed significantly. And unfortunately, it's getting more and more like New Jersey. My, my co-counsel here with CCDL are Doug Dubitsky and Craig Fishbein, both very, very capable attorneys. And basically what we've concluded is it's time to challenge the entire system. Mm -hmm. When we look at it, the authorizations are utterly unacceptable, but we've gotten to a point where it simply is, there is no compelling state interest narrowly tailored to the way that they currently handle a fundamental right. So are we going to need a strict scrutiny test uh, put out by the Supreme Court, which hopefully we'll get, so that you know, that'll work? The, the real key on it, I mean, the problem that we've seen is the use of intermediate scrutiny. Right. And intermediate scrutiny is meaningless because most courts will find that essentially any justification we right. found to meet intermediate scrutiny. We, we need to get away from it. When we look at fundamental rights, we, we've got to come in. We really have to do that narrowly tailored analysis. And if there is a less obtrusive way to do this, it needs to be done. And if you have a right, um, it isn't a right if you can't exercise it. So that's, that's where we're headed. Um, we're, we've got a tentative commitment from one of the major national organizations to help us with this. Um, Good. Pleased to say U.S. Law Shield has also indicated they're going to come in and help us with this. And the thought process right now is that we're going to go after the entire system. We're going to look at it from start to finish and say... As we look at this, at every point within the system, they simply disregard the rights of the individual. Because when a person, you know, listen, I'm preaching to the converted. No, but, but it's very interesting. The, you know, one of the women we spoke with today, um, she went out, she got a restraining order against a boyfriend who had previously been convicted of seriously injuring another woman. Hmm. 
But once she got that restraining order, um, she wanted to get a firearm. And uh, they took seven months to process her application, to submit it, and now, eight months later, she's still waiting for her permit. Oh, what, what use is the, you know, of what possible argument is there that we have a Second Amendment right if when you need a firearm, you've got to wait 15 months for it? It's meaningless. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Well, you know, uh, New Jersey and Connecticut really have a lot of issues being pushed there, Greg, that are just as crazy i mean we have they're fighting the license delays i see that all the time and, the, and you guys have an appeal we don't even have an appeals process built in and it has no teeth it's supposed to be done within 30 days but it has no teeth and i mean it's these, interesting because uh, our appeals right now uh they're working 18 months to 36 months to get an appeal of a denial of a pistol permit um, however, I contacted the board, and we have a carry permit, and we have a certificate of eligibility. A certificate mm. of eligibility simply allows you to purchase a firearm. Mm. And I came in, and I said, listen, um, under Heller, we have a right to purchase. As such, I have a right to a prompt appeal in exactly the same way as you have a right to speedy trial. And the board agreed with me. And they came back and they, uh, they gave us uh, an appeal in 10 days rather than a year and a half. Hmm. So I haven't seen a lot of these cases, but we have managed to push a few of them through. The, the other interesting one, I don't know whether you remember, Evan, uh, way back in the day, you know, back in horse-drawn carriages here, the president of Ruger was an attorney by the name of Stephen Sinetti. Oh, yeah, Steve Sinetti, yeah. Steve went on, and uh, he went to NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, mm -hmm. became president of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. He mm -hmm. has just been named to the Connecticut Board of Firearms Permit Examiners. State's not very happy about it, but under a technical procedure, Steve was just appointed. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens on that board with a real top-flight lawyer sitting on it. Wow. Just that is going to be good. Oh, that so is there, interesting. There's some good things happening here. You know, the, the nature of the judiciary uh, is improving. We have a number of very fine judges that that have taken the bench within the last few years. Um, we have a better Supreme Court, obviously, than we've had in a very long time. But as the cases work up, I do believe they are going to strike down these restrictive, time-consuming systems that we've traditionally seen in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, Hawaii. I mean, you know, how could Hawaii possibly be constitutional? Well, think back when we were both at Benenson and Cates, and if you look back to then to now, we really have done some amazing, I mean, from Heller, I mean, just the whole turnaround, even academically, you know, we witnessed the buildup so that these things could happen. I mean, back then, you know, the idea of Second Amendment meant an individual right was laughed at, you know. 
Right. You get nowhere. So it is Lost amazing five. the progress in just our careers of seeing that change. Tribe on constitutional law. Absolutely. Right in there. Yeah. The Second mm-hmm. Amendment does not include an individual right. Um, back in 1993 to 95, Mark and I were working on a case called uh, Benjamin. And um, the in the, the case where um, we challenged the Connecticut assault weapons law, with Benjamin versus Bailey. Okay. And we came in and we said these assault weapons law, even if they there was a compelling state interest, they're so badly written that they do not withstand due process under void for vagueness. Right. The lower court came back and they said, well, um, while we're not really sure what the law means, uh, the firearms dealers, they know a lot about these guns. So we find that it's not vague because it is not unreasonable to ask a firearms buyer to simply go to the dealer and to ask them whether or not it's one of these banned weapons. Well, we'll go ask the fox whether or not it's okay to eat the chicken. I mean, you know, what what kind of a legal standard is this? If the dealer says it's okay, it's okay. Well, so, that's ridiculous. And that's what I, I actually won on that issue when I had New Jersey's law declared unconstitutional in Merrill. But that was the lower court uh, on a criminal matter. And the judge said, yeah, it's vague because you no one knows what substantially identical means and knocked it out. But then... The gun rights group at the time brought it into federal court, and that's when the attorney general promulgated his opinion that defined substantially identical by the 1996 federal crime bill. And so, uh, I mean, 94 crime bill. And so that was kind of, right, 94. So that was kind of amazing that a law passed by New Jersey in 1990 with an unconstitutionally vague term was somehow defined by a federal law passed four years later. Right. And upheld its constitutionality on that. That was amazing. Yeah. You know, Connecticut, in its ultimate wisdom, um, Mark and I, along with Wes Horton, a tremendous constitutional lawyer, we took it up to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Mm. And what did the Connecticut Supreme Court say? Well, you can't really ask the dealer whether or not something's legal. So... What you're going to do is you will look at the manufacturer's catalog. And then depending on what it says in the catalog, you'll be able to determine whether or not it's one of these. And therefore, it's not void for vagueness. Okay. I'm trying to treat so, it like uh, pornography, almost like you know when you see it. You know, when Benenson Cates came in with, um, with Horton and Mahler on the Benjamin versus Bailey case, um, we had a tremendous team. We had some very, very fine lawyers. And we were sitting there. We were working through everything. But at the same time, the state of Connecticut, I understand, put 11 attorneys on the case full time. The attorney general in Connecticut has 100, I believe it's 130 attorneys on staff. So as a private attorney, when you bring a firearms case, up against the state, you understand that you're coming up potentially against 100 lawyers. It's very, very hard to do. And if, the other thing is that for the state, they're being paid by the state. 
So they have an unlimited budget, they have unlimited lawyers, and if you're a small lawyer, and you know, Evan and I are both relatively small firms, it's very, very challenging. Um, what we've got right now in Connecticut, um, Doug Dubitsky is a former partner with one of the largest law firms in Connecticut. He's an elected state representative. Uh, he has retired from the, the large firm and now has kind of dedicated himself to handling pro-2A cases. Tremendous resource, fine lawyer. Um, Craig Fishbein, the number two lawyer from the CCDL that I'm working with. Uh, Craig has represented the largest range in Connecticut over a period of decades. Many, many years around this. As I say, he's now an elected state representative. Uh, he is also a former member of the State Board of Firearms Permit Examiners. I've been doing this for 36 years. Um, I have represented many manufacturers, uh, dealers. I am an FFL. Um, I serve as the responsible person on a, uh, on a Type 10. So, you know, when you look at all of this, you look at those of us who do this on a daily basis, you know, and wondering, you know, where do we get to the point where we finally can get heard by the high court? Here we are. Yeah. We're about to finally see fruition of these these years, these decades that, that so many of us have worked. And you know, it's all across the the industry. You know, it's it's Steve Halbrook, it's Richard Gardner, it's it's Evans work down there, you know, mine up through Connecticut, uh, across this nation, it literally has taken 30 years to get this in front of the court, and it's just about to happen. Hey, this is Evan Knappen reminding you that gun laws don't protect honest citizens from criminals. They protect criminals from honest citizens. And thank you, Craig, for being here today and letting the listeners learn what's going on in Connecticut. My pleasure. Gun Lawyer is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Reach us by emailing evan at gun.lawyer. The information and opinions in this broadcast do not constitute legal advice consult a licensed attorney in your state.